Hello, Renu. Hello, Declan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We are. We're discussing a topic that I thought we'd finished discussing. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Because um, in surgical practice, somehow stuff just creeps in without yeah. having a pivotal randomized control trial, unlike in oncology. Uh, and for us in Australia, transperineal prostate biopsy is a really good example of that. In, yeah. in my last uh, 15 years here in Australia, uh, I've seen it go from practically 95% of all prostate biopsies are done transrectal to now, I don't know, 80 plus percent, maybe more, yeah. we'll talk about it. Are transperineal. Why is that? It's just been a change in practice brought in by uh, urologists and by patients saying, uh, I'm worried about the risk of sepsis if you stick the needle through my rectum mm. uh, and sort of emerging data on it. But there hasn't been uh, a random. No, trial. no, which is why this is so special. Exactly. So um, we're going to talk today about the PREVENT trial, uh, this trial we've been waiting for for quite a long time that's just been published in European Urology. Uh, of all journals, um, led by uh, Jim Hugh, a urologist from New York, who's going to be joining us in a moment to talk about this. So it's an exciting moment to talk about randomized trial. And for that reason, we've welcomed in a friend of the podcast, uh, Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet has joined us again. Jeremy, thanks for coming back. No, oh, it's great to be back, Declan. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this chat. What did we Good talk to, to Jeremy you. about the last time? Oh, well, I mean, Jeremy is a leader in surgical education. And so MRI Pro was, was a big topic of conversation last time. And, and you're really getting that going at that time, Jeremy. How's it all? Yeah, no, that's going really well, actually. No, we continue to get people involved and uh, lots of subscribers from many countries around the world. So that's been fantastic. So hopefully it's it's really been really useful in, in getting radiologists and urologists um, much better equipped to read prostate MRIs properly. And for our listeners, just give us a brief rundown on MRI Pro and, and what are the benefits of, of subscribing and... And learning. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so it's basically an online training program for targeted really for radiologists and urologists who need to know how to actually read and report prostate MRI. So it's 300 cases and every case has histological confirmation. So users get instant feedback um, on the cases that they're doing. Uh, it's actually a Monash University approved short course. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great way to learn how to read prostate MRI without having to practice on real life patients. Yeah, and, and a very multidisciplinary approach to it because even radiologists who read MRI don't often get the feedback of, yeah. well, what did the final pathology yeah, show? Abs- yeah, absolutely spot on. And that, I think that's a huge deficit in, in how we do practice is is not giving radiologists that feedback. That, I mean, that's actually just a practical little tip is that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're um, writing the, uh, uh, the order form for your pathologist or your request form to examine a biopsy result, copy in the radiologist. Yeah. So at least they get a chance to absolutely. have a look at their own results. Good yeah. point. Yeah, so that's a great resource. And so De- um, you know, Declan, I've when I was um, when I did my fellowship at UCSF, um, I, I worked with Dr. Katsudo Shinohara, fantastic. Mm. And you know, he he taught me how to how to read MRIs. And and at that time, during my whole fellowship, we were doing transrectal prostate biopsies, MRI fusion biopsies. And then I came back to Australia after my fellowship, and haven't done a transrectal biopsy since. Yeah, it's amazing. Hmm. So that's what's happened. And I think um, data from the Movember registry uh, tells us, Jeremy, that. 80 plus percent and now that's not just in cancer centers or private practice across all regional metro public private 80 plus it could be higher could be 80 could be it's 80 to 85 percent you're spot on Declan and I think yeah so I've just had a look at that recently myself so that they're the numbers across Australia now there's a bit of variation from state to state but but you're right I mean and you think about you know when you look at the numbers and I'm sure Jim will speak to this but uh, the numbers that are, are happening for example in the U.S. It's, it's a complete reverse, isn't it? Uh, even more so. 
So yeah, it's fascinating. And it's it's come in mostly driven by, I suppose, clinicians have been interested in this, but there are some barriers traditionally to doing transperineal biopsy. Um, the way we still do them actually is, is in theatre, in the operating room, under a general anaesthetic for most patients. And we do use a, a grid, a, a, what used to be a brachytherapy template grid. So there's a stepper uh, and a grid that helps us guide it. Um, but you don't have to do that. We'll talk a little bit about that later in the podcast. There are more simple ways of doing a transperineal biopsy freehand without general anaesthetic and so on uh, but even without those barriers of um you know being in the operating room and having specialized equipment the growth has been huge and what was interesting in recent years is the reimbursement in australia the government reimbursement for transperineal biopsy changed because it used to be the same regardless of which way you do the biopsy here's the reimbursement so it was pegged at a less costly procedure but then part of a you know a multi-stakeholder review including patients led to them increasing the rebate for transperineal biopsy and i think decreasing the rebate for transrectal so again that helps push it out yeah yeah no that's right i think look i think that's been a huge factor rightly or wrongly there's no doubt reimbursement um, is a factor in how we practice medicine but if the reimbursement is backed by science then all the better well, that's what we have to talk about, isn't yeah. it? Uh, so I'm like you. So uh, I completely switched to transperineal biopsy before I moved uh, to Australia 15 years ago, uh, where I trained at Guy's Hospital in London. They had a long-standing interest led by my, my old colleague and mentor, Rick Popert, who was very interested in transperineal biopsy. He used to call tra- transrectal biopsies transfecal biopsies. And so he said, why would we put the needle through the poo? <laughs> through the rectum, we can put it through the skin. So uh, we were. I was very influenced by that. So... Uh, in our practice here in Melbourne at Peter McCann Cancer Centre, we completely stopped doing transrectal biopsy 15 years ago. But yeah, what about the, the science, Jeremy? So we we should go and have a chat with um, our yeah. guests. So we're really pleased to be joined by uh, Jim Hugh, urologist um, at Cornell University in New York. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's uh, wonderful to have this opportunity and uh, and and be be chatting with you across the world. So, Jim, um, what's the background to this to this study? Because I mean, randomized surgery, uh, randomized trials in surgery are, are very rare. You know, what was it that prompted you to 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 run the study? Absolutely, I, I think we were being exposed. You know, it's, it's great to hear that background of how uh, transperineal has really become predominant in Australia. And I, I, you know, I think as Jeremy alluded to earlier, the footprint here in the U.S. is much less. I would estimate it's probably about 10 percent, if that. Mm, wow. And uh, we don't have a way to formally look at that because there's not a, a separate code. For example, transrectal and transperineal share the same billing code. And so so these are all estimates that largely come from industry. Uh, but 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 here in the U.S., we've seen more interest in doing this under local anesthesia. I'd say largely using the freehand, which you alluded to earlier, and uh, the question came up just, you know, what, what has a lower infection rate? Um, as you, I think, mentioned earlier, of course, the European urology guidelines strongly favor the transperineal approach. And in the U.S., for I, I think largely for reimbursement purposes, if you do something in the office, for example, using the transperineal uh, precision point, that freehand device, that's probably a $200 out-of-pocket expense for the practice, right, that's not reimbursed by the uh, the payers. And so I think that's probably been a barrier to adoption. And so that's what led, to, led us to ask the question, is there really a difference in infection rates? Uh, and and we, we use no, no antibiotic prophylaxis for the transperineal arm versus targeted prophylaxis for the transrectal. And I'll, I'll just put a little caveat on that in the sense that if you look at what's done in the U.S. for the prophylaxis in transrectal biopsy, it's probably augmented prophylaxis. And we've looked at that in Medicare claims where Less than 2% of men have a rectal swab or a rectal culture before their biopsy. And so, 
So although we didn't really follow what's predominantly the approach for transrectal, we felt that the targeted prophylaxis was more stringent. It's also, um, you know, endorsed by the guidelines just because of antibiotic stewardship. And so that just that's the uh, the prophylaxis that we compared the the no antibiotic transperineal arm to in terms of what we did for transrectal. Before we dive into that, Jeremy, I suppose that's always been well. The concern has been that doing transrectal biopsy, there's an accepted risk of infection, and we can talk about what historically that's been. But you certainly see it reported at two, three, four percent, maybe, of patients mm-hmm. getting you know severe infection, maybe ICU, or you know, like really bad sepsis in hospital. Mm. So to ward that off, traditionally guidelines have said you must use antibiotics, and quite a lot of antibiotics, like a few mm. days of strong antibiotics at yep. the very least. So that raises a concern about antibiotic stewardship, overuse of antibiotics in this era when we won't have them. Oh, you and I wrote a paper, I remember, mm-hmm. in Nature yep, Urology Nature. many yep. years ago mm-hmm. about that, that whole argument from an antibiotic stewardship alone reason that WHO is saying, we're not going to have antibiotics forever. Be careful how you use them. Mm-hmm. So, all right, you know, transrectal biopsy, classic example. Yeah. Um, but second, as Jim just said, one of the ways to sort of improve that further is to do this targeted um uh, antibiotic thing so that that means like the patient has to come in a few days before have a, mm-hmm. a rectal swab done mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. and then wait for sensitivities and then use a, a targeted approach of again strong antibiotics so it, that's not common is it that people actually go to that effort they just well, say no i'll use loads of antibiotics roll over there have a biopsy well i think i mean jim's just just mentioned that himself is that you know i i totally agree with the sort of setup of this randomized control trial in terms of the the, the way the arms have been set up but if in practice targeted um, prophylaxis is not really being used, then um, you know how, how are you then going to translate in, that into real life? If it's all being augmented prophylaxis, and we already know, as Jim has said, that the augmented prophylaxis is really going very much against the grain of antibiotic stewardship, and yet it sounds for transrectal biopsy is that's the norm. And, mm. and I think, so there's the two issues, as you highlight, Declan, there's the individual patient in front of you who you want to minimise their risk of sepsis, but there's a much bigger issue, and that's the public health issue of antibiotic resistance. And if we just keep doling out um, augmented prophylaxis, we are not doing ourselves a, a service for the future. Totally right. And look, we'll talk more about that later. But let's go back to the, the study design, mm. Jim, and tell us a bit about that. Tell us about the, uh, that control arm of how you did the augmented or targeted prophylaxis. Yeah, as you absolutely said, the, the patients had to come in at least a week prior and um, in some cases, you know, and it also gets to center by center. It is a multi-center study to try to increase generalizability. But for example, when we started the study at, at our center, we had these swabs, these rectal swabs that would really just tell you whether there, there was a fluoroquinolone resistance versus not. It didn't speciate. For example, was it also resistant to uh, aminoglycoside or to, uh, to a cephalosporin? So, so initially we had to guess somewhat if there was fluoroquinolone resistance, then to, to you know pick the next next best antibiotic based on our local antibiograms. And again, I think going back to your conversation there, you, you probably find in the US, despite in guidelines saying that your prophylactic antibiotics should be dictated by antibiograms, I, I would be concerned that most urologists probably don't have access to that or, or don't know what their local antibiograms show. And so so the points that the very good points that were already raised. It is much more inconvenient, and um, and really, it was kind of sprang out of our collaborators. One of them being um, Anthony Schaefer, who developed a targeted prophylaxis at Northwestern, uh, being on our team, and and that's why we we went with that approach. 
So the primary endpoint was infectious complications. So, of course, us uh, transperineal advocates <clears throat> were keenly looking forward to this, thinking, all right, we're going to see a really significant benefit yeah. for transperineal. So tell us about the, uh, the primary endpoint. Absolutely. So we, we, we looked at, uh, we defined this a priori uh, as simple urinary tract infection, a complicated urinary tract infection, which is basically, you know, a, a febrile UTI, and then, of course, uh, urosepsis. And so, so having those stringent criteria, we, we looked at the, uh, as you mentioned, the primary outcomes, um, just as a caveat of, and, and from a grantsmanship purposes, it was interesting when we originally applied for funding from the National Cancer Institute, they didn't distinguish, um, if you will, medical phase two and phase three studies from surgical. And so, so our original uh, study design was to have about 500 uh, patients in each arm. Uh, however, they said, look, that would be a phase three study. And they random somewhat subjectively said anything over 400 is a phase three study and we don't fund phase threes. And so that's when, how we arrived and back ended into a, a uh, about a 400 some odd patient study. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, when, when you look at the AUA or the American Urological Association white paper, the estimate of uh, infection is about 5 to 7% after a prostate biopsy. Wow. Yeah. Thoughts on that, Jeremy, on the study design? Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating background, Jim, as well. And in, in some ways, it's such a shame now that, you know, obviously retrospectively that, you know, it wasn't a... Uh, a trial that, that had more people, given that uh, the actual numbers didn't show a, a statistically significant difference. But I guess it's always easy to look back uh, in retrospect. Um, <coughs> I, I suppose, um, on the other hand, it, it, it's a good trial uh, from a, a design point of view in that you have used infections overall rather than pure sepsis, because if you then had to compare sepsis, well, then that's a, an even smaller subset of patients and you would have had to even use even bigger numbers. So, you know, there are pros and cons. And, and I did want to actually take the opportunity to, to congratulate you on conducting a randomised control trial because it's, uh, it's yeah. hard work. And tell us about those numbers, um, uh, about uh, the actual uh, infectious complications rate. Having anticipated, as you said, it could be as high as 5 or 6 or 7%. Now, that's not in a, a targeted or augmented um, uh, prophylaxis setting, but what were the actual numbers? Absolutely, Declan. So it was uh, so out of 287 men, and it was intent to treat analysis, but the numbers weren't that different for the per protocol because we didn't have that much crossover or dropout, et cetera. But out of 287 transperineal biopsies, there were no infections, whereas there were four infections after 280 transrectal. And so that gave us 0% zero, zero obviously versus 1.4% uh, infectious risk. Uh, as alluded to earlier, that p-value was 0.059. So it, it, there was a trend, but wasn't statistically significant. And I should also mention that all four infections in the transrectal arm were basically febrile UTIs. None, none of them were, were uh, sepsis and they all presented within 24 to 48 hours. And, and we all, you know, we gathered all of the, the, uh, the paperwork, people presenting to the emergency room, tracked down their culture results and, and really adjudicated these carefully with, with Tony Schaefer and others to, to determine whether or not they were related to the, uh, the, the biopsy event. Anything that, Renu? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, even four though... zero. But know, that's the thing. It's four patients. with antibiotics versus zero with no antibiotics. So is the message that in the control arm of a really well-conducted trial in, in really good centres, you can significantly improve what has been the historic community-reported infection rate, you know? And is that maybe, maybe the answer? Um, you know, because the critics will say, yeah, well, there you go. There's no bloody difference. Uh, let, let's forget about that. You know, just need to be a bit more careful with my antibiotics and uh, to heck with the antibiotic stewardship. 
Yeah, I mean, it's and it, it and that's a good point. And what what Jeremy was really alluding to earlier is how transferable is this to general practice around the world, and you know how feasible is it that every man comes in for a rectal swab a week mm. before uh, you find out the resistance pattern and you and you do this guided antibiotic treatment, and it's still antibiotic treatment. So yeah. for antibiotic stewardship, yeah. there's it, there's still going to be an impact. Yeah, and I think there's a great lesson here just in the, the pragmatic aspect or the practical aspect of how we do biopsies. Um, so Declan, you've already mentioned, you know, that one of the obstacles of transperineal has been, you know, general anaesthetic in the past, although now it's, you know, it's, we know that it's easily done under local anaesthetic. But here's an obstacle now for transrectal. Right. Yeah, if you're going to do it properly, mm. you got to do it you with do a rectal. It you've got to do a rectal swab yeah. beforehand. That's 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 world's best practice now. If you're going to do transrectal, well, is that feasible? Yeah. Doesn't look. I mean, the the evidence would suggest that it's probably not, given what Jim's saying about the current practice in the US. What do you think, Jim? So, what's what's the reaction been like uh, to that that primary endpoint? You know, it's interesting. Um, it's it's. It, I think it goes back to that old saying. It's it's hard to get a man to understand something if. If uh, you know their salary depends on them not understanding it, right? And so, so when we when we send it to uh, the reviewers, and and we should also mention the context that that Bedar Mien, who's from Albany, upstate from us here in New York, had published a single center randomized control trial, and it's I think in press or just came out in Journal of Urology last month. And so, in his study, it was two point six percent transrectal infections versus two point seven percent, and there were some differences. I think primarily that was the composite endpoint. I don't think the infectious outcomes were that stringently defined. And you have to keep in mind that during the study, of course, there was also COVID and there was a, I think, infection within 30 days, right? And so, so I think when, when we submitted our, our uh, manuscript to European urology as well as others, um, there, was, there were reviewers that already said, well, you know, the infection rate can't be 0% for transperineal because BADAR study came out. And so, so I think that some of those reviewers, I suspect, you know, maybe U.S. urologists and, and you know, as you know, we, we've witnessed this in, in urology and over, over and over again, for example, robot versus open and those sorts of debates. And so, so I think it really depends on your perspective. It, I think where, where the study endpoints get to is that there's something here, a little bit here for everyone, right? Because it doesn't definitively say this is superior. Now, with more sample size, I think we'll see a significant p-value, but I think that's where things stand currently. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Can I comment on that? Yeah, I, I totally agree, Jim. I think um, when I read this uh, with the results of your randomised control trial, I thought, oh, well, this is, <laughs> this is great. You've got, you're going to have people who are pro-transrectal saying, oh, look, there's no difference, yeah. so let's carry on. And then you're going to have people like me who are pro-transperineal who are going to say, yeah, but there's a whole arm here with zero infection, yeah. with zero antibiotic prophylaxis. And so that then justifies that side of the argument. So, yeah, people will read into it what they want, even, if, even though it's a randomised control trial. Yeah, something there for everyone. Yeah, so that doesn't change practice necessarily then, does it? But just means that people have choices, would you say? And that if you are to do transrectal, this is showing you a way in which you can get those infectious complications extremely low. Yeah, so what, I think so. And, and look, to be honest, that's, that, that, thing? Well, look, that's what the EAU guidelines actually say. So if you, if you look at the actual guidelines, the, at least the, you know, the ones from last year, we haven't seen you know, this year's come out yet, but... Um, it's basically, yes, transperineal is the preferred approach, but if you don't have access to transperineal, there's a whole algorithm of what to do in terms of transrectal. And it is with targeted prophylaxis, and then they give you different antibiotic types, uh, choices, and, and so forth. So 
it's not quite as black and white, I think, as some people might like to paint. Um, mm. there, is, there are options, and I think that's important to recognise. I mean, we, we live in a, a real world, so not everyone has access yet to transperineal biopsy equipment. That needs to change, but during that time of change, there are options. And, th- and that's a really important point because I, one of the, one of the um, knockbacks I always get when I'm advocating for transperineal biopsies is, well, yeah, but you're lucky you're in Melbourne, you've got access to the equipment. You know, we're in a much more remote place. Patients don't want to travel the three hours to Melbourne to, to get a transperineal biopsy. Well, maybe this is now exactly. a but, new but, option for them. And I think, Declan, you mentioned before about, you know, the change in reimbursement. How interesting that small regional centres around Australia since the reimbursement changed, they've managed yeah. to find a way to get access yeah, to... Access. And it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to have all the whiz-bangery that we use for brachytherapy, for example. You can have the most basic um, setups and still do transperineal biopsy under local anaesthetic, mm. you know, really quite easily. So, Jim, what was your practice like before this trial and how has this changed uh, the way you do things? Absolutely. So, so I, I would say that... Um, and, and it's interesting how we as urologists adopt technology or new approaches, I have to give credit to Fernando Bianco. He really got me started on transperineal approaches to, to not only biopsy, but in, you know, in clinic focal therapy under local anesthesia. Mm-hmm. So that's really what, what led me to, uh, to this path, I'd say back in say 2017. Um, but back then we were still trying to figure out, you know, if we're doing MRI targeted fusion biopsies, and these were almost all targeted biopsies, you know, what's the right platform? We're trying to, you know, we're using the, the Artemis, which had the fixed arm, it was very clumsy. Um, and, and then I think as, as the popularity of freehand cognitive fusion has expanded, that's what we ultimately settled upon for the, the, uh, the intervention arm for transperineal biopsy. And so, so that's, been, that's been my journey. And um, I think what we're also seeing is that a lot of the sites that were involved with enrollment are saying that, you know, it's more and more difficult for them to to randomize patients because patients themselves are aware and or asking for a transperineal approach. Yeah, we definitely saw that in Australia, Jeremy, didn't we? There's a, there was a whole patient advocacy thing saying, I'm aware, we were aware of this, it's in patient forums, I don't want a transrectal biopsy. So for whatever reason, that seems to be have evolved as a standard of care across Australia. And I suppose looking at your trial, you can say, well, then your trial certainly shows this is a very safe approach. And therefore, I think both practices can be supported. But maybe, Jeremy, I'll ask you about the, uh, the EAU guidelines because uh, you, you have sat on the EAU Prostate Cancer Guideline Committee for the mm. past few years. You've just um, uh, cycled off it. Yep. And during your uh, reign, um, uh, that was the period in which uh, the EAU guidelines, I think it was about two years ago, came out and said, the transperineal approach is preferred. Was that the language, I think? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, I, uh, so, yeah, can you come, first of all, on... <laughs> how the guideline committee um, came to this recommendation? And second, how do you think they will look at this? Uh, you're outside it now, but what do you think yeah. they'll, they'll think? Yeah. Thanks, Declan. So, so rain is definitely not the right word. Um, <laughs> uh, I w- I, I, I've got to say it was a real privilege to be on that panel um, for about six years. Uh, and, yeah, I'm sure Matt Roberts, who's sort of taken my seat on the, on the panel, um, will do a fantastic job. But... Um, so the process is fascinating, and that was it was a real you know gave me a real window on how it all works. Um, so you're probably aware that you know uh, prostate cancer guidelines panel is just one of multiple EAU guidelines panels. There's a there's a whole other panel that is purely dedicated to infections. So actually, it was the infection panel that came up with 
the evidence base and the recommendations. And my, my part of my job was to basically make sure that we were aligned. Um, because you, obviously the last thing you want to do within one organisation is have one panel saying, oh, here are the guidelines uh, from us, and our own prostate cancer panel saying, oh, well, our guidelines are a little bit different. That's a disaster. It's got to be on the same page. So it was totally led and run by the infection panel. Um, we looked at what they had written and said, yep, 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 yep. There was really no... We were absolutely aligned on that, um, basically from the outset, so there was no issue. And, I mean, um, Adrian Palatz, who's on the infection panel, you know, they their, their group published two uh, systematic reviews, both in JUROL, you know, very soon before the guidelines came out. So there was a very large evidence base, albeit not randomised control trials, that were specifically questioning the sepsis issue. They were looking more at, you know, um, cancer detection rates and so forth. But there was a large evidence base and, you know, including, um, albeit, again, single cohort, but, I mean, you know, we published ourselves on, you know, 577 consecutive cases with... You know, which is a decent number, consecutive cases um, of transperineal biopsy, no comparison arm, but zero sepsis um, and just using kefazolin as a single-shot prophylactic. I mean, you know, that's just skin commensal cover, nothing more than that, really. Yeah. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty basic sort of stuff. Um, and now we've got studies coming out in addition to Jim's RCT, um, which are also examining, you know, zero antibiotic prophylaxis in transperineal biopsy. So... You know, there is a decent evidence base. It's just not the highest level until now. Do you do um, no antibiotics at all? Yeah. So the last okay. two years I've been, I've, based on, the you know, the evidence um, that is out there, uh, that I've been not using any antibiotics whatsoever. I've had, again, zero sepsis. And what about uh, zero? You're still, still on zero. I'm not on zero. I have had uh, two patients with sepsis over the past 15 years. I remember them both very, very well. Yes. This is very rare, and I do a yep. very large number of biopsies. So I'm not sure what that percentage is, but I remember them both. Uh, uh, the second guy is a colleague, a doctor, you know, who uh, specifically wanted a transperineal, but he got proper sepsis, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, you know, and the zero thing, Jim, as you pointed out, makes people nervous. It's a, you know, reviewers don't like seeing zero. Yeah. Um, but hey, it is what it is. Uh, it's just that I think it's extremely low is what I tell patients. Mm. Um, but I don't, in medicine, I, I explain we don't like saying 100% or uh-huh. 0%. Uh, there's always some uncertainty, um, but it's extremely rare. And I'll be having my biopsy transperineal. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the zero. In fact, I'm going to go to you with your zero <laughs> sepsis rate. Yeah. No, it, it, to be honest, and, and I, would, I would think the same. If I was outside it, I would think, oh, zero, come on. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. And, and um, we, we, obviously there's an element of luck involved because it's not going to be zero across the board. And the other larger studies show that it's not zero. But as you say, it is extremely low. And for good reason. You're not going through the rectum. You avoid all the bugs. It's more of a surgical technique all the stuff that we've been trained in from day dot is be clean, be sterile. And yet with a transrectal biopsy, we're happy to pass a needle through a faeces-contaminated organ. So, Jim, I think the nice thing about this study is to, to the people who do practice transperineal biopsies, I think, I think they, can be rest, they can rest assured that it is, it's a very safe technique. Uh, from at least from an infectious complications point of view. But the challenge is on those who practice transrectal biopsies to, to streamline their technique and make sure patients are adequately covered. Absolutely. I, I think the other, just, um, you know, to, to highlight really briefly the secondary endpoints and, and you know, a, a biopsy is no good if you're not detecting cancer, right? And so, so one of the other hypotheses perhaps is that if you're doing a transperineal biopsy, the distance from the, the skin or, or from where you're starting to the prostate, of course, is longer. 
you're going through, you know, the, the pelvic floor musculature and, and oftentimes the needle that, that we're using, I know there's diamond tip shaped needles, but we're using cutting needles that, that can also deflect, right? And so, so it's reassuring that the cancer detection rate of clinically significant or grade group two or higher was 53% for transperineal versus 50% for transrectal from where I targeted. And those compare favorably, for example, with the study by Adut and Peter Pinto from the NCI, where I think MRI targeted and largely transrectal biopsy detection was 43%. And I think the other caveat or the other point that the reviewers that I think were pro, pro transrectal like to point out was look, you know, the uh, zero to 10 numerical rating scale for pain after the procedure that, that the subjects filled out um, was 3.6 for transperineal versus 3.0. Of course, 10 is the highest pain, zero lowest. And so there was a, you know, the reviewers kind of said, oh, it's statistically significant. But when you look at the acute pain literature, you know, the, the, it's usually a 1.5 point difference on those scales that's considered clinically significant. And so, so again, the, the different ways that people slice and dice this to, um, to fit their preferences or how they want to view biopsy, I think. And nice. do you think, uh, how do you think practice will be in, in two years time, in five years time? Do you think it, it'll be still roughly around 10% uh, or will it grow a little or will well, it grow I mean, quite a bit? Sure. I, th- I, th- I think if I looked into my crystal ball and, you know, I, I would just say it, just to kind of tease the, the, uh, the viewership on, on this brilliant podcast is that, you know, we're, we, we have to constantly clean the data and the NCI let us, is now letting us enroll to about 740 patients. And I think we're at 710. And so knowing what those numbers, I, I could just say that it's still zero for transperineal. And there's a separate study that we have that's funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And that's in men who have a prior negative biopsy or active surveillance. And we're at about 510 patients for that. And uh, I'll just hint again, it's zero in that cohort as well. And so I think that when you look at the randomized trials that will come out, and I know that Ulster Lamb in the UK has, I think the other trials are more for cancer detection rather than a primary endpoint of infection. And so, so when you look at the accumulated evidence, if we stay at zero, um, and I'm, I'm kind of probably slip, letting that slip out a little bit, but I think in the interest of public health, the patients, the, the physicians should know that. I, I, I think when, when that, that p-value gets to less than 0.05, hopefully, um, and again, I, I may be kind of showing my biases as someone who came into this hopefully without bias, but I think that um, that those things will probably change practice. Very good. Very good. That's great. Well, look, congratulations again, as Jeremy said, congratulations yeah. on doing a randomized control trial full stop. It's such a huge thing to do, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you look very well and healthy for a man who's survived, you know, <laughs> putting a randomized trial together. It does break some people, doesn't it? So. Well, I, I will. I, I do have to give credit to uh, Andrew Vickers. You know, he can, he has this two stage consent, and for those who are trying to do randomized control trials, it's a brilliant way that's been ethically looked at and and so forth. Where you you, you know it takes some of the uh, the cognitive dissonance and or hesitation that patients may have when you say, look, we're flipping flipping a coin, and so it's a very clever way to do it. And I would encourage those to to take a look at it or to reach out to Andrew to discuss that because it's it's, it's brilliant. That's great. Fantastic. Congratulations. Great to hear. Um, so, yeah, the link is in the show notes to that wonderful paper from Jim Hugh and colleagues in European Urology. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how that will all get interpreted, I suppose, as time goes by. Um, Jeremy, we're we're not going to be dropping our rates of um, transperineal biopsy in Australia. Mm-hmm. It seems here to stay, and this study will help that, I suppose. Uh, look, I think so, yeah. I don't, it's not going to change practice in Australia, as you say. Um, but uh, but I, I do hope that... Um, 
you know, our American colleagues will really consider uh, what the outcome of this trial means, particularly for the for the lack of requirement for antibiotic prophylaxis. Mm. I think that's the big one. Absolutely. And you, Renew, you're not for changing the lady in for No, turning. no, yes. I think uh, I'm going to read this trial as keep going. Fantastic. So again, uh, Jim, thanks so very much again. Congratulations to you and all your team. Really nice work and exciting to hear that um, there'll be more of that coming uh, in future years as well, that this study is going to go and go and uh, I think that'll be really, really helpful in helping us understand the role of transperineal biopsy. But um, here from us in the GUCast studio, we aim for changing. If you're coming to any of us for a prostate biopsy, uh, you'll be having a transperineal <laughs> biopsy. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Good to have you. And yeah. thank you, Jeremy. Hey, thank you, Jeremy. Pleasure. A, thank you. What a privilege and a treat. It's wonderful to connect with you. Thank you so much. <laughs>